1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For ideological and pragmatic reasons, it's always been hard to become a citizen of the Gulf states, even for lifelong residents. That's starting to change ahead of an imagined post-oil era. So far though, reform seems only to favor the elite. And, for years, Britain's familiar red phone boxes have mostly been used as photo ops for tourists. Many have been sold off for a song to be converted into coffee kiosks or book exchanges. But one man has turned them into real money spinners. First up, though... In America's Upland South, people are dealing with the aftermath of a tornado, or family of tornadoes, that carved a rift of total devastation across several state boundaries.
2: It looks like something out of a movie. It's just, uh, you see see it on TV, but you never imagine it happened to you, you know? It's just, it's crazy. It's just like a nuclear bomb went off. It's uh, horrible.
1: Dozens of people have been killed, but Kentucky State Governor Andy Bashir says a precise death toll won't be known for weeks.
0: Now, this is the deadliest tornado event we have ever had. I think it's going to be the, the longest and, and deadliest tornado event in U.S. history. Deanne
1: Criswell, the head of America's Federal Emergency Management Agency, has warned that such events may become more common. And after declaring the event a major disaster at a White House press conference, President Joe Biden spoke of a wider global threat.
3: The intensity of the weather across the board has some impact as a consequence of the warming
1: of the planet. The likelihood of fewer weather catastrophes, absent a continued movement on dealing with global warming,
3: is just not going to happen.
1: But it's not so simple to link tornadoes, even disastrous ones like this, to climate
2: change. This is a terrible event to look at by any yardstick.
1: Oliver Morton is our briefings and essays editor.
2: The full casualty numbers are not yet known, but it went across a number of states, and although destructive tornadoes do happen in December, it's not particularly common. And when it happens at night, you have particular worries. So this is a really pretty terrible event, and also in some ways a pretty unusual one, most notably one of the supercell storms, which spawns tornadoes, seems to have been doing so pretty much continuously for something like 200 miles, which meteorologists are finding quite remarkable.
1: So let's wind back a bit. How do these tornadoes develop?
2: So these tornadoes come about, especially that long string of them, from something called a supercell storm, in which it's not just hot air trying to rise up through cold air, but there's also a difference in wind speeds between the upper and lower atmosphere, the wind directions. There's also a difference in the direction winds are flowing, and that difference of directions starts becoming something helical, something spinning, and then the updraft in the storm means that the spinning is no longer, as it were, lying on its side, but increasingly upright, and then it can break down through the bottom of the storm and form a familiar funnel-shaped tornado of various different sizes. Tornadoes are curious things in that they are really predominantly an American issue. There are tornadoes elsewhere in the world, but America just happens to be as it were tornado-shaped. It's just very well set up with a bowl of warm water at the bottom of it and some mountains up in the northwest for mixing hot air and cold air across big flat plains.
1: And after an extreme weather event, there's immediately talk of pinning it or not pinning it on climate change. What's your take on that at this point?
2: Well, I think in general, it's not always a particularly helpful way to look at an event like this. Whether this was caused by climate change or not makes very little difference to the people on the ground at the time. But it is important to try and understand what the changes that humankind is inflicting on the earth actually look like. So in general, it is a reasonable question. Unfortunately, it's not one that's easily answered. Tornadoes are particularly weird forms of destructive weather because they are so local. They're very specific, they're very capricious. You can hear these stories of people whose houses were destroyed and people nearby who got through... Scot-free, And things we know about the ways that the atmosphere and the climate are changing due to greenhouse gases, those tend to be very broad brush things. And so you can say that, for instance, some of the conditions which we link to tornadoes are changing, some of the big environmental conditions. But that's not the same as saying that the actual number of tornadoes is changing because... In America, it isn't. America has seen a significant amount of global warming, as has the rest of the world, but it has not seen a significant change in the number of severe tornadoes.
1: So that is to say we haven't seen any real changes in tornado incidence size location?
2: Not all of those things. There's a more bunched pattern of tornadoes in that they tend to come together a little more than they used to. They tend to be bad times and good times and bad years and good years. It's not clear what that trend means, but it's a trend that you can see in the data. Another trend is that the tornadoes in what is historically thought of as Tornado Alley, going up through the middle of the United States, up from Texas, up the Great Plains, are becoming relatively slightly less common and tornadoes in the south that we saw these tornadoes hit are becoming relatively more common and that's something of a concern again You could think that might be to do with climate change. It's certainly true that since tornadoes involve a lot of very cold air hitting and running over a lot of very warm air, the fact that the Gulf of Mexico has been phenomenally warm compared to average circumstances over the last couple of months, the fact that overall America has had one of the most clement autumns on record, that feels like it might have something to do with it, but there's no way to actually link them specifically to these tornadoes.
1: But as we've seen before, some very prominent people are drawing a straight line then between this kind of event and climate change.
2: Well, a straight-ish line. People are saying that these are signs of climate change or even that this is the sort of world that we can expect under climate change. Deanne Criswell, the head of FEMA, said something along those lines.
0: The severity and the amount of time this tornado or these tornadoes spent on the ground is unprecedented. This is going to be our new normal and uh, the the effects that we're seeing from climate change are the crisis of our generation.
2: You take that to mean that you are going to see unexpected events in a world in which there is more energy stored up in the atmosphere in somewhat different ways than there used to be, then yeah, you're going to see things you don't expect. And to that extent, if the new normal just means abnormal, then you're pretty much out of the woods. There's a worry, I suppose, that if people say things are due to global warming and they're not, then that will in some way discredit the whole idea of global warming. I think that can be overblown because I think that, by and large, no one is saying that the reason for acting to mitigate global warming rests entirely on tornado tracks. At the same time, would I like people to speak with a certain amount of geophysical exactitude on such matters? Yes.
1: And do you think that this whole discussion is going to change attitudes in America about climate change?
2: A majority of Americans already believe that climate change is happening, that global warming is happening. I'm not sure whether this will make more of them or a few of them believe, but I actually don't think that beyond a certain level, the beliefs of Americans in general on this subject matter particularly. What matters is the things that specifically Republican politicians are willing to vote for and are willing to countenance having said, which is to some extent a response to what their Wants to hear them say. And so that's a very performative thing that I think is probably fairly insulated from the realities of whether convective potential energy is changing in the atmosphere or not. Thanks very much for joining us, Oliver. You're very welcome, Jason.
0: What's next in innovation?
2: So, you've decided that you wanted to start your British citizenship application.
0: souhaitez obtenir la nationalité
3: française par décret. So, if you want to learn more about the four ways on how to become a US citizen, please
1: keep watching. YouTube is full of videos like these. In just about every country in the world, if you're willing to pour over a pile of paperwork and pony up a pretty penny, there is a path to citizenship. Stick around long enough in a foreign land, and you can be naturalized. The notable exceptions have been, until recently, the Gulf states. But these days, for a lucky or moneyed few, the path to citizenship is becoming a bit clearer.
4: In Bahrain a few weeks ago, I spoke with a man named Kamal, who had a story that might be unusual anywhere outside of the Gulf.
1: Greg Karlstrom is The Economist's Middle East correspondent.
4: He's an Indian-born expat who has been living in Bahrain since the 1990s. Uh, has done a series of white-collar office jobs there, put his kids through school, saved up a small nest egg for retirement. And he's now getting to the age where he's looking to retire. But he finds the prospect of retirement very unsettling because it means going back to India, going back supposedly to a home that he hasn't lived in in decades.
1: And you suggest there that this is not an uncommon story in the Gulf states.
4: It's not. Uh, There are about 30 million foreigners living in the Gulf. They make up almost half of the total population in the six members of the Gulf Cooperation Council, the the wealthy Gulf states. And for almost all of them, there is no path to citizenship. Your life in the Gulf is done on a series of short-term visas. Those visas are tied to your job. And once your job ends, your residency in the Gulf also ends and you have to go back home regardless of how long you've spent there.
1: And why is that? Why are Gulf states so resistant to to grant citizenship?
4: There's a few reasons why. For locals, for Gulf nationals, the concern has a lot to do with their identity. In many of the Gulf states, locals are a minority. Uh, In the UAE, where I'm based, they are outnumbered 8 to 1 or 9 to 1 by foreigners. And so there's a concern that if you start naturalizing large numbers of people, that it will change your national identity. For governments, the concerns are more financial. Governments in the Gulf extend a range of benefits to their citizens, everything from low-interest loans to build houses, to grants to get married, even things like cheaper mobile phone plans. And they don't want to extend those benefits to large numbers of naturalized foreigners. So there are these two concerns, one more ideological, one more practical, that have discouraged Gulf governments from granting citizenship to foreigners. But what we've seen over the past 12 months or so are some very small steps towards changing that attitude.
1: What kind of steps?
4: Start in January in the United Arab Emirates, the UAE, where the government announced that certain foreigners would be eligible for citizenship. We're talking about people like inventors, scientists, doctors. There's a few categories they set out, and members of those categories can be nominated for citizenship in the UAE. In November, Saudi Arabia went a step further. It said it had already naturalized a number of expats. It didn't say how many, but again, it said it was targeting particular groups of people based on what they do, based on their jobs. You also have in many of the Gulf states now long-term residence visas that are not tied to employment, that are usually linked to either investment or income that give people an opportunity to stay in the Gulf states, even if they're not working.
1: But you're describing quite a a, a narrow slice of society there. I mean, how how many people would actually benefit from this?
4: Very few of them, to be honest. First of all, the numbers are small. The expectation in the UAE is that they'll naturalize only around 1,000 people a year, which is one one-hundredth of a percent of the population. And the groups they're targeting, as you said, are a very select, very elite group. So if you're a particularly talented doctor working at a hospital in Dubai, you might be eligible for citizenship. If you are a secretary or a janitor or even a nurse working in that hospital, you would not be eligible. The same goes for these long-term visas that many Gulf states are offering. Again, they're tied to income or to investment, and they have fairly high thresholds for that. So a, a, a very slight loosening then, but, but
1: a loosening nevertheless. Why is that happening now?
4: It's out of self-interest and competition between the Gulf states. All of them right now are trying to figure out how to diversify these economies that Uh, for decades have been based on oil and gas wealth. And despite the recent spike in oil prices, there's a growing realization here that that money is not going to last forever. So everyone is trying to diversify. And of course, it helps if you can attract wealthy, talented foreigners to not only live in your country, but stay in your country. Uh, It's part of a broader push to impose social reforms in a number of Gulf states, uh, again, as part of this economic competition. Uh, I think we've seen it most dramatically in Saudi Arabia over the past few years, where uh, the religious police have been sidelined, women have been allowed to drive. There have been a number of other changes to loosen the conservative social strictures in Saudi, which has prompted other Gulf states to then go further. We've seen in the UAE, for example, over the past year, the government has changed a number of laws. They've made it legal for unmarried couples to live together. They've taken away the criminal penalties around drinking alcohol. Uh, And of course, earlier this month, the government announced that it would shift to a Saturday-Sunday weekend for the public sector instead of Friday-Saturday bringing the UAE in line with much of the world, but of course a dramatic change in a country where most citizens are Muslim because Friday is the Muslim day of rest and and communal prayer. And I think this effort to naturalize talented, wealthy foreigners is of a piece with those changes as an effort to diversify these oil-bound economies.
1: But you did say that the resistance to to granting citizenship was ideologically driven in part. How how are these kind of loosening restrictions landing with natural-born citizens?
4: There's been some unease about these changes, I would say for two reasons. The first is that citizenship, even for native-born people in the Gulf, is not a right that is shared equally. Uh, I think one very clear example of that has to do with gender. If you are a male Gulf citizen married to a foreigner, you have the right to pass your citizenship to your wife and to your children. If you're a female Gulf citizen married to a foreign man, those rights don't apply. Your husband will never be eligible to apply for citizenship. And your children will not automatically receive it. Even if they grow up entirely in your home country, they will be treated as your dependents until they're 18. And then if they can't arrange their own residency after that, they may have to leave the country. So there's been a lot of concern since these citizenship schemes were announced about the fact that, uh, again, many people who were born here don't enjoy those rights. Uh, We saw a rare bit of public criticism of the government from the wife of the ruler of Sharjah, which is one of the seven emirates that make up the UAE. After the UAE announced its naturalization plan, she posted a, a short comment on Twitter saying that naturalization for the children of female citizens was a demand. And many other Emiratis then joined in and shared her criticism.
1: You said there were two issues here. What's the second one?
4: That's one issue. The other is that whether it's naturalization or any of these other social reforms, they're taking place really without any public debate. And so all of this is simply being imposed by fiat over the past year by the government. Some of it, what we're seeing is quietly, there is a backlash to it. Take the weekend, for example, this change to a a Saturday, Sunday weekend. After that was announced, Sharjah, again, one of the seven emirates here, announced that they would keep a Friday, Saturday, Sunday weekend. So they've moved now to a four-day work week and a three-day weekend. So there is a fair amount of, of dissension about some of these changes, but there's no opportunity to voice that. There's no opportunity to give the government any criticism or any feedback. And I think it's a, an open question how all of this will go down in the long run with local populations.
1: Greg, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. The Economist's style guide frowns on the use of the word iconic, unless something really, really is. For Britain, the word might invoke double-decker buses or black cabs, all still in regular use. The iconic red phone box? Eh, not so much. In the mobile phone era, there's just no call for them. There were once more than 60,000. Now only about 200 of the original K2 design remain, and a few thousand of the later versions. The effort to keep them useful and profitable has some calling foul.
3: On a recent Sunday, I went to meet Danny Baker on a high street in London, and he rents a phone box that is now a cafe.
1: Margaret Khadifa writes for The Economist.
3: He makes flat whites on an espresso machine where the phone used to be, and the kind of novelty of a cafe in an old red telephone box attracts passers-by. And they form a very orderly queue outside of the telephone box. And some of them become regulars.
1: You say he rents his out, but from whom?
3: Mr. Baker rents his phone box from someone called Edward Otwell. And Mr. Otwell bought more than 100 of these boxes quite a few years back. And he rents out some of them for a few thousand pounds a year. So there's Mr. Baker's box, which is a cafe. And if you go a few streets away from his, there's a cupcake machine And there's a third kiosk, a few more streets down from that, that has a QR code that offers discounts for an e-bike share scheme. And Mr. Otwell also sells these boxes on an online platform called BidX one And the kiosk that Mr. Baker rents is on the market for 57,500 pounds. That's 75,000 US dollars.
1: Okay, so Mr. Baker rents his phone box for Mr. Otwell. But how is it that Mr. Otwell came by all of these phone boxes in the first place?
3: BT, which was formerly known as British Telecom, owns the kiosks, and they've been trying to offload them ever since mobile phones made them redundant years ago. And BT launched a program for kiosks that are still in place, and it's called an Adopt-a-Kiosk program launched in 2008, and it basically sells boxes to charities and local councils for a pound and those charities or councils can turn the boxes into something useful. So Mr. Otwell co-founded a charity a while back, and he bought the boxes through that charity.
1: But this doesn't sound so much like charity work. that sounds as if Mr. Otwell is more of a, a phone box landlord.
3: I mean, yes. So... Basically it appears that his charity sold the phone boxes to a for-profit company and that for-profit company has been the entity that's been, you know, renting them out to people and that's been selling them on the online platform. By the end of November, Mr. Otwell had sold around 40 boxes through this online platform. So one went to a Hong Kong buyer for 43,000 pounds and another went for 32,000 pounds to a local artist who is planning on kind of using the prime location outside the British Museum of this one kiosk as a gallery space. And this seems like a really steep price compared to the, you know, one pound that BT charges. But the reason why is that a lot of these boxes have heritage designation, which means that they can't be moved or substantially modified without permission. And so buyers, in effect, are purchasing the square meter of land that these that these boxes sit on. So there's really a market here. You know, like right now, this is pretty much the only way that a private individual can get a hold of a kiosk.
1: There is a market here, and it sounds like Mr. Otwell has pretty well cornered it.
3: Yes, he has. The problem is that BT is not happy about it. So in May, BT served a legal letter to Mr. Otwell's company and charity. BT seemed to take issue with the idea that either entity could sell the phone boxes. And any sort of case that bt would would pursue against mr otwell you know really relies on on whether or not mr otwell always intended to make money off of these boxes as opposed to use them for charitable purposes so the standard contract that bt uses to sell the phone boxes through its adopt a kiosk program charities and local councils doesn't have anything in it that actually forbids resale. And so if Mr. Otwell perhaps bought them for charitable purposes and then just decided to sell them to a for-profit company, it's very possible that that's completely fine. And I contacted Mr. Otwell and asked about BT's allegations. And I also asked about kind of the decision of having the charity sell the boxes to a company. And I, I didn't hear back from him.
1: And so how do you think things would go if this does actually come to a courtroom battle?
3: So if BT does manage to prove misrepresentation, then it could probably seek the return of the kiosks that Mr. Otwell still owns, but not the kiosks that he's already sold. And what's kind of interesting about that is that that will mean there are even fewer kiosks that can go to private owners that are left. And if we think about, you know, your classic supply and demand economics, that means that those kiosks could become even more desirable and even more expensive.
1: Thanks very much for your time, Margaret.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and see you back here tomorrow.